Hello, Erica. Hello, Stephen. We're back with Lazy Doctor Who, mm-hmm. and so is Doctor Who with season eight. Season eight. <laughs> Not season seven. Not season seven. No, the changes are immediately apparent, aren't they? I maybe I'm imagining it, but I feel like even the the twirly swirly time corridor in the opening credits is more like swinging psychedelic pinks and yellows and stuff. Just I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm projecting or something, but I know I I can't remember it. For some reason, it does it does feel more colorful. Maybe we're just looking at the screen grabs right now in the DVD menu, and the the past one Inferno was you know the shots of Inferno over yeah. the stock footage. So maybe we just don't remember it, and that could be it too. But uh, it does seem a lot more colorful. The Doctor's got a, a like a dark red coat now as opposed to the black one. It's sort of more of a, a purple burgundy kind of a thing, or a purple burgundy one. <laughs> Trust the red green colorblind person to uh <laughs> to decipher what colors it is mm-hmm. yeah colors yeah it's 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 different mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. still good though it's still doctor who but it's not season seven yeah it's not no it, it's interesting i'm finding that like i've seen this story twice before yeah. so this is not new to me at all i've talked about it twice on podcasts before i believe so i yeah i feel like i know this this uh, the story pretty well. Um, but I'm finding now watching it in context, I knew it was going to be a different experience watching it in context, but I'm finding that the things that I thought were going to bother me more in context really haven't. And things that I didn't expect to bother me are. (laughs) Okay. First of all, let's start with things that you thought were going to bother you, but aren't. Um, I thought the doctor was going to bother me, Ah. but he doesn't. Um, so I think part of that is because I have I've learned to appreciate his character more mm-hmm. through the course of season seven, uh, as opposed to being just dropped in here and having him um, complaining at Joe, like right off the bat. Yeah. Now I now I recognize he's actually quite justified in being annoyed because he had, you know, he had a perfectly qualified scientist to help yeah. him out. And I, I really don't like the whole, you know, the brigadier saying as you know, as Liz said herself, all you need is somebody to hand you your test tubes and tell you you're a genius. That's not true. I feel like that is a huge mischaracterization of their relationship because he used her as a sounding board. He Mm -hmm. bounced ideas off her. He used her as a proper assistant who would actually like do some of his work for him. They worked as a team. Liz Shaw absolutely did not, you know, ever hand him his test tubes and tell him he's a genius uh, in that way. And if she said something like that, and maybe she did, I'm sure it was it was joking and in recognition of the fact that he is a genius. And yeah, he can certainly get by with just somebody to do that. But they were such a cohesive unit that, and I don't mean that as a unit pun, um, that I think the Brigadier's flippant line there actually genuinely pisses me off. Unless there was a, uh, I know, and uh, maybe the reason she went to Cambridge is because they had a falling out or something, um, mm-hmm. and and she screamed that as she ran out the door to go back to Cambridge. I don't want that kind of headcanon. <laughs> nope, nope. No. Yeah. So I'm, I'm the, you know, they don't give us anything on the screen, so you can basically fill in whatever you want. Uh-huh. Um, but. I feel like if I were to choose some sort of headcanon, which I really haven't, but it would be something that she needed to go work on something urgently. There was something important that required her attention, whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like that she would have left for just like, oh, I'm just going to go and I'm pissed at the doctor now. 
because she wasn't at the end of the last story we saw her in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's true. She was laughing. Maybe she had a secondment, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was like, well, it's been a year. I said I'd do this for a year. Back back to Cambridge I go. Yeah, I mean, maybe her contract ran out and you didn't, couldn't get the funds to keep her because yeah. I had I imagine they probably had to pay her a lot more than they would have to pay somebody who doesn't know the meaning of the words opposable digits. Somebody who talked to her higher up relative and got her a job as a scientific assistant at unit Mm -hmm. you know what i feel like and that's another thing i'm surprised about is that i actually like joe in this story way more than i expected to but i feel like i feel like katie manning and the director and the other actors all are doing a good job of showing joe in a good light and robert holmes maybe has a problem with women because the writing <laughs> maybe the writing is really bad for her right. like i feel like i feel like katie manning kind of overcomes it and the reactions of you know the doctor and john pertwee's character and the brigadier um make it make it a lot easier to to like her but the whole first sequence where um, you know, I, I certainly don't blame her for putting out a fire. That's that's mm-hmm. fine. But then the whole, you know, not knowing what <laughs> opposable digits are and uh, cephalopods. And I mean, it was just they really made her out to be a, a ditz, like especially in that first first thing. And then also when she's hiding, like, you know, she says I'm a fully trained agent i can you know spy spy stuff so here i'm for a second thinking like oh yeah that's right she's like the action hero sidekick and when she's sneaking into the plastics factory to hide i was like yeah this is awesome go joe this this is your skill set this is what sets you apart from liz and Uh that's that's not a bad thing and she sneaks in and she's hiding and i mean (laughs) i have a problem with the direction having her have her head up that high because she would have been completely visible but that's that's not a writing or joe problem the problem that i have then is that she's so like clumsily just knock something over which isn't a thing that somebody who's you know good at that sort of mm-hmm. thing would do so is this just is robert holmes trying to tell us that she's actually not very good at that either like she's not book smart and she's also not good at being uh you know a kick-ass action hero or and this is what i suspect or is it just they needed her to be discovered for the sake of the plot, so they had her character do something stupid in order to make that happen, instead of another character do something smart to make it happen, and that makes me mad at Robert Holmes right now. <laughs> it might, it might be Robert Holmes. It might be just the direction they want. It's almost like they wanted to show that Joe Grant was a bit of a ditz, but would sort of come through in the end and sort of like earn her position. And right now, in episode one, mm-hmm. we get the ditz. Yeah, but. Okay, so there's the ditz, and then the, yeah. you can be a ditz uh-huh. and also be really good at your um, at your your spy job that involves uh, physical coordination right. and you know b- being aware of your surroundings and that sort of thing. So I feel like those two things are not mu- mutually exclusive. They could have left in all of the you know, boy, Joe doesn't know much of anything yeah. stuff at the beginning, and then had her still be competent in this other realm. But ha- still, ha- they- there were many, many, many ways that they could have still had Joe discovered and caught out without her screwing up. They could have had two guards walking at her from opposite directions and oops, you know, like nothing she could do. But no, she knocks over a giant stack mm. of plastic trays. Yeah, the character was intended to be a bit klutzy and a little bit scatterbrained. And Katie Manning, 
uh, basically won the role because she came in and was like late for her audition and was scatterbrained and like clumsy and knocked things over. Uh, and so it, it kind of like, well, this is a, a bit of a natural fit. She was naturally like Joe Grant was supposed to be. So they went, I mean, kind of like when you're casting doctors, you sort of go against who the previous one was because you want to sort of chart a new path. So Liz was ultra competent at pretty much everything. And you're right. It, it, there would be a different way for Liz Shaw to discover uh, first off, she probably wouldn't have gone out on her own like that, but Joe Grant does. Because, yeah, Liz Shaw was super competent when yeah. it comes to, like, book smart yeah. stuff. She was not um, terribly great at, you know, sneaking out of places and being a spy and hunkering mm-hmm. down and, like, doing the kinds of things that we here see Joe trying to do I mean you know I'm thinking of times that Liz tried to escape and ended up just getting caught again <laughs> right away right. Um, to death yeah exactly um, so I guess I guess maybe it's just in my memory of seeing this and other stories I remember Joe being better at the spy game stuff uh-huh. and maybe I was just imagining that because I really wanted that to be the case um, but yeah see that's that's how I think they they would have better served the character to go in a different direction and make her just competent at something else rather than being like, okay, we have a character who's competent at stuff. So let's have a character who's not competent uh-huh. at stuff. That's uh, yeah. Like if she's, if she's supposed to be able to pick locks and, you know, do that kind of stuff. Um, I'm just, now I'm putting it in D and D terms in my head. <laughs> like if you're a rogue, which clearly right. that's what she's, that's what she's set up to be. Uh, you know, you need a pretty high dexterity score. You don't need to be that, you don't need to be that, uh, that wise or even that mm. smart. Um, but you kind of need the high, the high dex, which, you know, goes into the picking locks and that sort of thing. And the fact that she doesn't even have that just makes me kind of annoyed at this, uh, this character build. Well, some, sometimes everyone rolls a one. Okay. I just wish that that one didn't have to come in her very first attempt at doing something helpful. Well, on occasions, on the very few occasions that I've played D&D, all of them with you, I've rolled a one when I wanted to. And then we imagine, okay, what happened? Probably I strung my bow and bloop, and then my, the bow string breaks and the arrow clatters harmlessly to my feet. Um, that, that, that can happen. And so it happens with the clumsy Joe. Yeah, I suppose. I just, I just, I don't like that narrative decision. I don't like that choice mm-hmm. to put her, to, to make her that kind of character right here. Well, I think it was a, basically a, a, a Barry Letts and Terrence Dix initiative to sort of let's make her a bit of a klutzer and stuff and, you know, make her a bit infallible. The only woman character on the show and she's going to be the fallible one who gets into trouble. Um, perhaps in keeping with Sydney Newman's remit back eight years prior to this when they were coming up with the making of the show. Small kid gets into trouble. Needs saving, <laughs> that sort of thing. So she's Susan version two in a way that Susan never really was. Kind of was, yeah. Kind of was. We finally have that. So, yeah, honestly, when you think about it, the, the Dr. Joe Grant companion doctor duo is very much a the prototype of what we think of when it comes to doctor who and the companion you know, mm-hmm. i think i think when you think about it, this is kind of what the new series when it came back in 2005 is basically mimicking the doctor and joe in, in many ways someone who was completely inexperienced uh was someone who was quite clearly has millennia of of, of experience and stuff yeah that's yeah. true mm-hmm. yeah because i mean 
it was interesting too when the show was coming back the the whole idea was like yeah that's how doctor who works it's the doctor and a pretty girl yeah. which when you look at the history of the classic series that's not actually the case for very much of it no. um before before we had liz like that wasn't the case at all um but this certainly sort of brings that to kind of another another level yeah and and we then do continue to get that for <laughs> quite a few years we do for most of the 70s pretty much yep. i mean we do have harry in there for a little while but yeah. Oh, that's kind of brief. Mm-hmm, it is. Um, what else? Oh, yeah. Cap- Captain Yates is here. He's one of the other two new regulars, initially uh, created as a potential love interest for Joe as the initial character remit. Yeah. So he gets some scenes. Yeah, he does. Yeah. He's, he's a good looking fella. Like uh-huh. she could do worse. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? Anything else you notice in this? Do you want to know about the thing that I was uh, not <gasps> oh. expecting to not like? Yeah. Well, yeah. What was that? The music is awful. <laughs> So that's another change. So up up until literally the uh, Inferno, uh, uh, for the first seven years of Doctor Who's existence, all the music was created beforehand. Mm-hmm. Basically, either written and recorded or stock music. It was also like all the stuff you heard, like Ambassador's Death, was like pre-recorded. Mm-hmm. They insert, like the director would say, hey, maybe give me about this long of this. Give me something, maybe a little up-tempo for about this long, and I can use that. And they patched it in. But... Uh, henceforth now the BBC said well tell you what we have a little more advanced technology we can dub the music on in post-production but they didn't have the budget to have Dudley Simpson do his usual um, seven or eight person orchestra or something to record that and also the time as well so they they used one of the newer giant mainframe computer synthesizers that the BBC had at the time and Dudley Simpson composed his score on that. So for the rest of series eight as a warning, that's, this is pretty much the kind of music we're going to get. Oh, my nervous system is not, <laughs> not going to appreciate right. this season. Is it? Cause seriously, like my sympathetic nervous system was just unsympathetic. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, like the uh, uh, I specifically the scenes toward the beginning in the uh, the radio control tower where like you get the kind of high and then the uh, the really low notes that just like reverberate. It's like a semi melodic fart that's happening, like a really low. That's not not pleasant. No, no, no. It's not my favorite uh, Dudley Simpson scores. Especially since it comes off the heels of my favorite period in Dudley Simpson music history. I think it actually makes it worse, too, that this is coming right off of Inferno, mm-hmm. where we had basically no music. Yeah. And it was just, the, you know, soundscapes and very intense. And here we have music that is so in your face. Um, music. I'm putting mm-hmm. that in, in quotes. Yeah. Oh, but, uh, the other thing that um, that changed for me from watching this in context was like i think i knew watching it before that this was the first appearance of the master Mm -hmm. but somehow seeing him show up in the very first uh first the beginning of the first episode like it just it hit me with much more excitement and mystery this time because you know he appears with that the sound of the of a TARDIS yeah. and I can imagine like you know having watched this along and then suddenly I hear that sound and I see like a caravan appear like what mm-hmm. and then here's this stylish dude in black who just like pops out and suddenly is hypnotizing people like I think I would have been really really like kind of you know hooked from that point you know right. seeing this this new surprising fellow 
pop out and just you know with just that sound effect is it's so huge like it just sets this huge era of mystery to be like okay this is somebody that's clearly connected to the doctor but how yeah mm-hmm. yeah Bar- barrelets and turnsticks were eager to ha- like sort of kick off seasons with more of a bang perhaps than they had done in in previous years with you know stories like the dominators perhaps it's not <laughs> not the thing you want to kick off a season of doctor who um and so they sort of thought i know we'll come up with a thing where basically the doctor is sherlock holmes well let's create a moriarty and that's basically what the remit was when it came to creating this new character of the master and yeah to have him like very first see like what he's in a tardis and we see another time lord as well up here in midair thanks to cso which features a lot in this episode as well and he's sort of like floats towards the doctor there like it's all very like looking back on it, it's like whoa we saw a whole other time lord in here he's talking about the tribunal and everything else and it's kind of intriguing mm-hmm. yeah and then the fact that the doctor clearly knows the master they've yeah. met before he's a jack and apes and yeah, an, an unimaginative plotter <laughs> yes that too just you know everything he does is trouble uh so that that adds another little layer of complexity and interest and stuff so yeah watching it in context is i think much more exciting that that aspect of the story because Mm -hmm. every other time i watched it i just jumped right in with it and you know kind of had lots of master knowledge and feelings from stuff that hasn't happened yet but now watching it from the other direction it's just like i can i can capture some of that uh, newness and excitement Mm -hmm. and he was like marketed like as like I remember seeing the the publicity stills of like you know the doctor and like the brigadier and Joe Grant and maybe Captain Yates were in there and the master was there like that like it's almost like here is the new member of the cast and it's the master like he was sort of like kind of treated on equal building which I think at the time rankled John Pertwee a little bit uh, but they became very good friends uh, throughout the course of the series so it didn't affect him that much but at the time it was kind of like oh should we really putting the villain on equal footing with the star of the show <laughs> well, i can i can understand that I, mm-hmm. I i probably wouldn't have said anything but i might have felt the same yeah. way had i been in his position mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh anything else about episode one you want to talk about you want to talk about gooch <laughs> gooch so gooch this is you say what well, robert holmes does have his failings writing women is perhaps one of them uh but he also has the the brilliant uh, economy of writing so much uh, into so little, basically. So Googe uh, complains about hard-boiled eggs and uh, complains to Christopher Burgess's character, um, for that is his name. Uh, and he just sort of like, uh, mm, yeah, gotcha. Like, it's almost like, okay, Googe has been doing this all the time. Oh, so I'm complaining about the hard-boiled eggs again. And then what he opens up his lunchbox and is he's, he's eating hard-boiled eggs and that's his last meal. I just thought, what what an insight into this relationship. So yes, now, now that you've watched this and then you've had your Verity cohort, Liz, talk about Googe, now you see this. Now, how, do, how does Googe sit with you now? Well, I mean, basically the same way because I, yeah. I, I don't know that that, that scene stood out for me the very first time uh-huh. that I watched it. But Liz had, had mentioned that more than once as being one of the right. things that she just loves about Robert Holmes and his, his ability to to create an entire character with about two lines of dialogue, which is exactly what he does there. So the next time I watched it, mm-hmm. um, for Verity, I believe, I, I was watching it with that wow. eye. Uh, and yes, yeah, it totally stood out to me. So much so that when we watched... The Woman Who Fell to Earth, from the most recent uh, new Doctor Who series, as we record this, uh, we had the the old uh, grandfather who's the security guard at the 
um, crane yard who gets roughly two lines talking to his granddaughter on Skype. And I felt like that scene is like, maybe not on purpose, but to me it really felt like an echo of this scene with Gooch where you just get a couple of lines and you learn like, this is, this is who this person is. And then they die. (laughs) So it's really, it just, it felt very much, very homesy in that, that little, that little piece of, of that episode. So every time I watch this, I now think of of current Doctor Who. (laughs) So any, any character who we see for like a scene Mm -hmm. uh, at most and then dies horribly, we'll think of Googe basically. Only if we see them for a a brief scene and they get like two lines that really establish who they are as a character. Mm -hmm. That's, that's the qualifier. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Googe. All right. Is that it? Is that it? All that we got for this one, or is, I mean, it's the beginning of a season, so feel free. Yeah. What, what, do you, what else you got? Uh, the other thing that plays, I think, a lot better. Right. Um, wow. Watching it in context is just the fact that now I understand where the nesting con- consciousness came from. So oh, I. Yeah, that's right. You wouldn't have you wouldn't have seen Spare from Space the first time you seen this, did you? No. No, I had not seen it. So, and I knew that. I don't know if I specifically knew that it was Spearhead from Space, but I, I did know watching this before that the nesting consciousness was already an established. And maybe I only knew that just from dialogue because of the fact that Unit had it and the doctor was already aware of exactly you know where it should have been and how much of a danger it was. So maybe I just picked up the idea that, okay, this must have been something that the doctor had already faced. Um, but it's different in being able to tell yourself, oh, clearly the doctor knew this enemy and having seen Spearhead from Space a couple of times and watched that whole season and like just now it's it's part of the fabric of what I know to be the Doctor's history. Mm-hmm. So it's it feels very different for that to be the the big bad well, the secondary bad next to the master yeah. of this of this episode. And, you know, somebody who is new and mysterious is leveraging this other enemy that the doctor has dealt with before. Like that's just that's a really nice kind of layering of um, of obstacles that he's going to have to to overcome throughout the course of this story. It's kind of cool when when adversaries team up in a way. It's very f- ficky in a way. And that was, <laughs> oh, what if the master and the autons teamed up you know it's like when they're oh what if the master and the cybermen teamed up or something like that and so yeah it's kind of cool to see that happen were they called autons in spearhead from space i am trying to think and oh yes they were yeah we're called the auton yeah i remember channing saying it at least once or right. twice yeah okay just just checking yeah oh yeah and then speaking of the autons uh they are very creepy looking in this um i really like the plastic factory aspect of it (laughs) he's colonel masters like that's you know that's that's nice that's a nice touch and how he's leveraging the fact that um so he he first pops up in the at the circus which creepy clowns in the background not a fan um and he knows the real name of the guy who he meets there so he's he's he wouldn't even necessarily have to hypnotize him because he could blackmail him, but that's not working. So he hypnotized him. So he's leveraging that. And then he's obviously, he's also done his homework as uh, Farrell tells him um, to discover not only that this is a plastic factory, but it's a plastic factory that has only been working at half capacity. And it's a plastic factory where the guy who's running it is the son of the person who started it and has huge daddy issues. Mm-hmm. So like clearly this, this master person is a force worth, you know like reckoning with because he's uh 
he he's, he's got done it. his opposition yeah. research. Yeah, uh-huh. like, yes, that's exactly it. And uh, like, I mean, he seems pretty well set up for success so far. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's it's a, it's a pretty good start to a story and a pretty good start to a season, which is not the rag, not the reaction I was expecting at all. Uh-huh. Uh, settling into this to watch it for a third time, so I am I am much relieved so far. But you know, there's still three more episodes to go. That's true, but I'm pleased. I'm pleased that 26 episodes into the Tom Pertwee area, you are enjoying it relatively. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh. I'm as I'm as surprised as anyone. Oh, that's good. Well, um, next up, I guess episode two. There's more four parters now. Well, there's two. There's two in season eight, uh, and then three, and then two six parts and a five parts because John, uh, Terrence Dixon, and Barry Letts were not pleased with these seven parters that were sort of thrust upon them by Derek Sherwin. So they asked, "Can we have more?" Uh, stories, which means m- m- more money, I think, or at least spreading it out. So that's why there's still 25 episodes in this season, mm-hmm. oddly, which is why there's a five-part story at the end. But um, but yeah, there's there's more first nights. They were after more first nights, basically, mm-hmm. like a first mm-hmm. new story feels like that's when sort of people like sort of jump back on or something if they've if they've faded away from it so yeah it, it gives you something more to promote yeah. as well like you know in this new exciting story mm-hmm. you know get people to 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 try it out for the first night yeah and yeah if you've got seven partners that's the, you know the, the sad 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 small number of <laughs> stories in season seven yeah. boo-hoo i know what you mean all right uh that's it that's it for this one Yeah, probably. Okay. (laughs) All right, then. Well, until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.